0: back to wandering the edge a podcast about ukrainian history with a spot of travel i'm your host larissa and this week we'll look into a cultural topic uh rather than a historical one and don't worry um there will be some history thrown in there Uh, also in this episode i don't think i'll be swearing actually so you're all be safe for this one And if you are listening on Podcast Addict or Apple Podcast, please leave a review or just rate it. And you can also find us on Spotify and, of course, the website wanderingtheedge.net. So, this week we'll be discussing Ukrainian wedding traditions. Why? Because my friend Bo asked me, so I thought I would oblige her. Um, There will be some tidbits from my own wedding. Uh, but also an exploration of how the Ukrainian wedding evolved into its modern-day equivalent. But first, let's take a look at some travel options for you in Kiev. Kiev. Okay so there's this like living museum in the south of Kiev um, that I've been to loads of times. I really like it there and I actually thought it would be a great place to get married. We didn't because I have a huge family. Um, Anyway the first time I went there was on that Ukrainian tour in 2001. There was a whole bunch of us um, and I'm almost 100% sure we were probably hungover, but it was really, really hot. Um, we did get a guided tour. Don't ask me what they said. Again, almost 100% sure we were hungover. So the level of information that was sticking in my head was very low. Anyway, I'm talking about the Ukrainian Museum of Folk Architecture and Life of Ukraine. It's... Uh, like a 1.5 square kilometer open air museum and is located in what was a little village south of Cave by the name of Pirohiv until the capital gulped it all up in 1957. Um, and it is now just a neighborhood south of the city. The entrance is located along the E-40 highway and getting to the entrance itself is a bit of a trek, but it's like two bucks to get in so well worth it now you can get a guided tour but it's um more of like a wandering experience once you get in you'll be greeted by these absolutely stunning authentic wooden win- uh, windmills the museum was founded in 1969 but it wasn't until 1976 that the first tourists or the first visitors visitors were allowed in It has over 300 architectural structures brought from all over Ukraine and carefully reassembled. There's buildings from the east, from Slobatschina and the Poltava regions to the west from the Carpathians, Central Ukraine and Southern Ukraine. Most of the buildings are open, so you can go inside and explore. The oldest exhibit is a house from the Volan region that was created in 1587. The oldest church there is from the Pitohiv village and was built in 1742. The main church, um, I believe it's called a St. Nicholas church, is still an actual working church and has services every Sunday. Some of the buildings might be closed due to renovations but you'll figure it out because those ones are physically locked up also some of the buildings that are open are both exhibits but also shops you can actually buy whatever the merchant is selling i actually bought two kilims there Um, they're ukrainian carpets that are not actual carpets but are used more as a way to stop drafts coming through the walls and i gifted these to my parents and um i bought an antique wedding towel that I actually used in my own wedding to carry the korovai, which I will explain later. There's also exhibits about traditional Ukrainian clothing, um, fabric, furniture, tools, pottery, uh, carpentry, blacksmith, paintings, icons, musical instruments, toys, and much more. They also have um, these so-called master classes where you can sign up and learn how to make traditional Ukrainian things. Um, like pottery or toys, or even learn how to embroider or paint in traditional Ukrainian ways. Also, the museum tries to revive and keep alive a lot of Ukrainian traditions. Um, They celebrate St. Andrew's Eve, Ukrainian Christmas, um, Kolodah, so Ukrainian caroling, St. Nicholas, our gift-giving day instead of Christmas, and... The Maslenitsa. This is our Mardi Gras. It's what we celebrate right before Lent, a time when we have to be pious and stuff. Now, I went um, to Petrohiv to celebrate Maslenitsa in like 2007 with my friend Natalia. It was awesome. There were exhibits and people dressed in traditional Ukrainian costumes and oh God, there was some lovely Samohonka, uh, moonshine. I'm talking about moonshine. So that Maslenitsa is an old pagan festival celebrating the god Volos and the ending of winter. The church has integrated it into their Lent traditions. And since this is a time when anything with eggs or dairy are not permitted to eat, you gorge yourselves right before Lent in a bacchanal of pancakes, crepes, and anything and everything that has eggs, butter, and milk in it. And because Ukrainians love their drink, of course we can get just really drunk. Anyway, when I went with Natalia, it was still winter and the entire museum was blanketed with snow. They held their celebration in the central village part of the museum that's right behind the windmills. Honestly, it was one of the greatest experiences. The people were nice. And of course, there were middle-aged mothers who kept on asking if we were single because they had a son living in Kiev and he even had his own apartment. They kindly offered to share their food with us along with a sip of their drink. Uh, I have picture evidence of me enjoying some crepes that paired very well with a fruit moonshine that you could buy. Honestly, those um, little old ladies were lovely and they made the festival as memorable as possible, especially when some of them pulled me aside and tied my leg to a tree log. Why, you might ask? Well, it's because it's tradition and the beginning of a courting game. Your future husband has to buy your freedom. I managed to negotiate a price for myself, which was a disappointment for them, but I didn't really want to get bought out, even though it's just fun and games. The museum has food booths, but also a full-scale kitchen that offers traditional Ukrainian cuisine, so if you could get a little peckish and didn't bring anything with you, you can buy something there. Depending on when you go, you can also even get a tour on a traditional horse-drawn wagon. Me and my husband also went there in like 2015 when they hosted a modern folk Ukrainian music festival. It was, as always, awesome. And even though there's not really detailed descriptive explanations of the buildings, the architectural structures are pretty self-explanatory. But again, if you want a more in-depth exploration of the exhibits, you can always get a guided tour. Or you can even check out their website, pyrohiv.com. So P-Y-R-O-H-I-V.com, com. Which um, I've actually included on the sources blog on wanderingtheedge.net. And the map that they have on there is pretty informative. But now... Let us talk about love and the ceremony to cement that love forever and ever. Okay, so Ukrainian wedding traditions aren't very popular with the academic world like there's almost nothing out there about them in a truly academic sense most are just um explanatory articles or travel features so the sources of this episode aren't really academic but rather more observational Plus, a lot of this is generally just passed down from generation to generation, and there's familial, village, and regional differences that can be added or subtracted from the wedding festivities. All the more academic works agree that the wedding is more of a well-planned ritual drama that incorporates pagan magic with medieval practices. That magic is associated with various acts that give one spouse superiority over the other, enhance the fertility of the couple, ensure the couple's well being and prosperity, and protect them from evil and misfortune. Irina Ignatenko, in her work entitled Eth- Ethnology for the People Holidays, Traditions, Customs, Rights, Signs, Beliefs of Ukrainians, divided the wedding ceremony into three stages pre-wedding, actual wedding, and post wedding. Each of these has a certain cycle of ceremonies that have to go through in order to be successful. Of course, in pagan times, all of this was a village celebration. And that's probably why Ukrainians invite so many damn people to weddings. I had people at my wedding that I don't even remember ever meeting. Um, back in the day, there were two types of marriages. Uh, A marriage arranged by the parents and those agreed upon between the newlyweds. There was also a third form um, where Ukrainians were under serfdom, the so-called Lord Law, which meant that the marriage was arranged by the landowner. Luckily, these days, it's just a newlywed marriage. Although I'm almost fairly positive that my parents were walking along that edge of the precipice that would lead to the other type of wedding. I kid. My parents are great and would only guilt trip me into doing stuff. Anyway, the wedding would usually take place in early spring or in the autumn. Why? Well, because the summer months were dedicated to the growing, cultivating, and harvesting of the fields. And there just wasn't enough time to plan and enjoy a wedding, especially when the entire freaking village has to be entertained. Nowadays, of course, you can get married anytime and any season. Now, another way of getting married back in those days, uh, was against the will of the parents or with their secret permission in order to avoid huge wedding costs, which we today might call an elopement or one could always so-called abduct the bride. I think we can assume this was the exception rather than the norm, but it was known to be done and has now turned into a wedding day game when the bride gets so-called kidnapped and the groom has to bribe his friends in order to get her back. This apparently, if the medieval primary chronicle is to believed, comes from the pagans, Slavic tribe, Uh, Tribes, namely of the Derevyanne, who apparently, quote, existed in bestial fashion and lived like cattle. They killed one another, ate every impure thing, and there was no marriage among them. But instead, they seized upon maidens by capture, end quote. They apparently just partied all the time and had orgies and exchanged partners whenever they felt like it. There was also an ancient marriage practice of purchasing a bride, which was mentioned in the 10th centuries. I guess if no one wanted you, you could flaunt your money and buy a bride, which still sort of exists today. Uh, The first step in um, the wedding ritual was the matchmaking. Although this really wasn't that necessary if the betrothed had decided to marry each other. Though, let's say... Taras's parents were looking for him to get married. They would then ask a family friend or relative to search for someone appropriate. I mean, if Taras already had someone in mind, this was more of a theatrical performance rather than anything else. But it was the beginning of discussions between the bride's representatives and Taras's parents. All of these pre-wedding traditions were important because it was the creation of a formal agreement between the two families. It gave public consent to marry. But W. Cherbakivsky, in his article, The Early Ukrainian Social Order as Reflected in Ukrainian Wedding Customs, does a great job detailing what happens during the theatrics of the matchmaking process. Quote, The bridegroom, accompanied by two of his doroste male matchmakers, carrying clubs given to them by the bridegroom as a sign of their authority, go with bread and brandy to the house of the bride, whose consent has previously been secured by the bridegroom. There, they beg to be admitted. After this conversation, the mother calls her daughter and invites the matchmakers and the bridegroom indoors. The daughter enters the room and stands by the stove scratching it with her finger, which symbolizes an appeal to the spirits of the hearth, her ancestors. The bride has to be asked to give her consent to the marriage, and after she and her mother have agreed, sometimes with the father's consent is also required, the mother asks her daughter to bring in towels, specially embroidered for this occasion, and it is the mother who binds them over the right shoulder of each starosta. Meanwhile, the starostas put the bread on the table and bring out the bottle of brandy. After the ceremony of binding the starostas with the towels, the mother accepts bread from them and puts her own bread on the table and cuts it. She then calls the bridegroom to the table and they drink brandy and eat bread. And afterwards, the bridegroom, together with the starostas, returns home carrying the bread given to him by the bride's mother, End quote. This was the first stage of the marriage ritual. It is also the oldest of the traditions and was probably how the early pagan wedding took place. But there are many more wedding traditions that the couple and their entourages had to go through before they were considered wedded. So let's say Taras wants to marry Zoriana. The so-called courtship begins formally, when both parents accepted the intentions of the marriage. This part was also called the legal ritualistic action, since this was a time when the marriage business could be shut down if there wasn't agreement. If you go forward from this moment and it doesn't happen, a lot of people will be pissed. It was at this time that symbolic signs of either consent or refusal became important. So let's say Zoriano or Taras raised a handkerchief, tied towels, exchanged bread, broke bread together, or treated matchmakers kindly, this was all a sign that yes, we're getting married. But if a pumpkin was gifted, or bread was returned, or if Soriana refused Taras a glass or refused to take a glass from him, all were signs of a refusal. So you best be knowing what your actions mean because who knows what could happen if you sneezed. Now, once both parties agree to marry, uh, it is time for the examination. So. Zoriana's parents and her entourage, which includes her friends and family, walk over to Taras' house and inspect his financial situation, living conditions, and household. Like, you don't want your daughter to get married to some poor drunkard, which is nice, I guess. Uh, Anyway, Zoriana's parents are happy with Taras' parents and their household, and so begins the last step of the pre wedding ritual the actual engagement. This was done when Zoryana and Taras tied their hands together in front of their parents and entourages. Now, this part is also an integral part of the actual church ceremony, but it was the first public union of the bride and groom. After this, um, a party is arranged for the young people, a so-called varenyky, which is also Ukrainian for pierogies, so I, I don't know where that came from. Um, At this party, Zoriana and Taras exchange a slovo, or their word that they would be married. If this was violated, the marriage contract would be dissolved, and the one who violated that contract would bear all the legal consequences, but also the moral implications. So, if you remember that episode um, from a couple of episodes back about Marusia Chorai. If she and Hritz did make their intentions clear and he left her for Helena, then Hritz deserved to be poisoned. This time also allowed the parents to conclude the legal marriage agreement the terms, expenses, gifts for relatives, who gets what, and what goes where. Zoriana would have to bring with her her, mar- her wedding uh, chest. This chest was important because it contained her dowry and remained her property forever. Taras would have absolutely no right to anything inside of it. It was used as a second table in the newlyweds' house and additional storage of really important personal and familial objects. There's a really great video from the um, National Museum of Folk Architecture and Life of Ukraine, um, their YouTube channel that has a nice compilation of the wedding chests they hold in their exhibits, but also a nice introduction to a very unique Ukrainian singing ability, the holos or the white voice. It's also called open or natural singing, which is a very traditional style of singing. Uh, I've put up a video on the blog post on the website if you're interested at wanderingtheedge.net. Now this agreement also identified how the bride or groom would be compensated for material or moral damage in case the marriage contract was terminated. So a lot of these traditions that I've talked about were spread out throughout like the week. But since we live in a modern era where that kind of festive atmosphere would not only be financially crushing, but also unfeasible due to modern work requirements, we condensed it all all to like a couple of days. The week-long wedding festivities would begin with basically preparations for the actual ceremony. So the Hiltzi Viltzi, or a ceremonial branch with flowers, ribbons, and ears of wheat was created And this would lead the wedding procession into the church. They would also prepare the vinox or wreaths, usually uh, made using periwinkle, which was a symbol of virginity, and would be used in the church ceremony, but also worn on the bride's head. Zuriana and Taras would then need to go from house to house and invite people to the main part of the wedding. So the day before the wedding... Zoriana's bridesmaids, female friends and relatives, are also involved in another very important wedding tradition, the baking of the korovai, or the wedding bread. The cover art uh, for this episode is actually a korovai that I got from uh, Moderne Korovai. It's an Ottawa based korovai baking company. I've linked to them in the photo credit on the sources blog, so go out and support them. Now, the korovai means cow. And again, as I said in the episode again about pagan beliefs, cows equal wealth and prosperity in Ukraine. The korovai can be big or small, intricately designed or simple, and there is magic involved in making it. The korovai is supposed to be shared among the guests at the end of the wedding party. And these days, it sort of depends on the couple. Some do share it among their guests. Others dry it and leave it in their home, while still others don't have it at all. But back in the day, it was a very important aspect of the wedding tradition. There were important ritualistic symbols um, and actions that needed to be done. Like, for example... Women who made the dough had to be bound by a special embroidered towel and their hands washed with holy water. You could decorate the Kotovai as you liked with each symbol meaning something different. Two birds represented the couple. Other birds might represent family and friends like an owl representing the fathers of the couple. Shoes might be representing their mothers. You also had to be in a good mood since that energy would flow into the dough. You also had to have a silent prayer before the korovai went into the oven. If the korovai was twisted or cracked, this was a sign of bad luck for the couple. If the korovai was nice and golden, you could decorate it further with wheat stalks. We have wheat stalks on ours, by the way. Herbs, nuts, flowers, and other symbols. It was made only by happily married women with no history of marital misfortune, and this was because their good fortune would magically pass into the korovai and then pa- be passed along to the newlyweds. This korovai would go with you to the wedding ceremony and to the party afterwards. So the korovai is made, the celebratory tree branch is decorated both sets of parents are happy with the union and so the day of the ceremony is here and like the other aspects of wedding traditions this day was and still is highly ritualized in the morning at soriana's house soriana's hair would also be unbraided and i will let uh just uh, 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 uh god i can't even say his name Schedabakivsky explain it in a better detail quote at the bride's house the ceremony starts with the loosening of the bride's plate this is done in the following manner a wooden kneading bowl is brought in and placed in the middle of the room then covered with furs or with a tablecloth and the bride sits in it the starossa blesses the unplating ceremony After an invitation sung by chorus, then the bride's brother, if he is a bachelor, or the nearest unmarried male relative, unties the plate. Afterwards, the um, drushkas, or bridesmaids, comb out the bride's hair, smear it with butter and honey, and hang on it coins presented to the betrothed couple. Finally, they add a crust of bread. Meanwhile, the bride's parents, aunts, and cousins, give her garlic as a talisman. Garlic is also hung on her hair. Then her hair is plaited again and arranged on her head in the form of a wreath. The bride now wears a girl's hairstyle for the last time. End quote. Obviously, we don't do this anymore. Honestly, it sounds like a lot of stuff being put on someone's head. But apparently, they did it. But today we do do a version of this around midnight when we take the veil off and put on a headscarf. This is done by the mother, grandmother, and godmother of the bride while all the eligible females dance in a circle around the bride. The veil gets passed around from one eligible female to another who then take turns dancing with the groom. The male guests get a chance to dance with the bride at this time also but for a fee of course. I think this has evolved from sort of like that paying of the bride custom. Um, I posted a video of this on the on the video blog a few days ago on the website if you want to get an idea of what goes on. Now Taras's friends and family Meet up at his parents' house and begin celebrating while Zoriana gets ready with her bridesmaids in her parents' house. Taras now has to walk to Zoriana's to get her for the ceremony. Now, because Ukrainians are a fun loving type, this isn't as easy as it seems. So Taras shows up at Zoriana's and is met with a gate, like a G A T E gate, like the ones that open which is nicely decorated table in front of an entrance to Zoriana's house. Zoriana's father and her friends wait at the other side of the table, and this is where the dialogue begins. Zoriana's representatives ask Taras, So, why are you here today? Anything special going on? To which Taras answers, To receive my bride, Taras at this point has to prove how much he actually wants to marry Zodiana and offers whatever he can to get her family on board. Once the price is met, not an actual price, it's usually a bottle of good vodka, uh, the doors are open and the bride comes out. But shockingly, the bride has a mustache and is very much taller than the last time the groom saw her. It turns out it's a fake bride and that's because the price wasn't high enough. And so the bartering continues. The main point of all of this is to have fun with the groom and to prove that he has the great determination in marrying the bride. Zoriana finally walks out and accepts Taras as her groom. Today, each family can customize how they do this. For example, we didn't do this at all. uh, But I know a lot of our friends did and each did it differently than the other. Now comes the most important and personal aspect of the wedding, the blaho Slovenia or blessing. Both sets of parents, grandparents, and godparents enter Zuriana's house and give the couple their blessing for their union. This devolves into crying really quickly. This is also when the parents present the couple with their icons. These icons are usually that of um, baby Jesus and mother Mary Um, and these icons follow the couple into the church ceremony and into their home these icons were usually passed down from parents to children but these days it's it's something the couple just buys So now, Zoriana and Taras have the final blessing of their families and walk together to the church. So there's a big difference between Western ceremonies and those of the Eastern or Orthodox ones. The bride doesn't get given away by her father. The couple walks into the church together. This is because the parents have already given their blessing for the marriage in its tradition that the couple walk into the church together as equals, so Zuriana and Taras walk into the church hand in hand and are met with the priests at the back of the church. This is another major difference between ceremonies, the betrothal at the very beginning of the ceremony rather than at the altar. This is because Zoriana and Taras need to reaffirm to the priests that they are coming into this union freely and without hindrance and are being forced to do it. If they have rings, then Taras puts a ring on Zuriana's finger and Zoriana on Taras's. But not on the left, but rather on the right. You might be asking why on the right hand and on the left hand as is done in Western Europe. Well, the answer is, I have no idea. But uh, it might have something to do with the influence of Byzantium over Rome in Ukraine. But today, a lot of people really don't care which hand they use. At this point, Zoriana and Taras are escorted to the altar area by the priest. And there's a couple of important instances that occur here. First, there's a crowning. Some churches still use actual crowns. But others prefer the periwinkle wreaths, which is what we did since I thought it was more natural seeing, as crowns are a bit pish-poshy. The crowning is important as it symbolizes the dawn of a new kingdom ruled by the couple. Thus, they are crowned the king and queen of their own domain. Once the priest places the crowns, or wreaths, upon Zuriana and Tarasa's head, it is time for them to take their vows. Our priest was pretty awesome and even admitted that we didn't need to include that whole obey part, but I wanted to include it and we made sure that both of us said it rather than just the woman. So Zoriana and Taras have exchanged their vows, have been crowned, and now is another important bit of the wedding. Their hands are joined and tied by an embroidered towel, the rushnik, which symbolizes their newly forged union. Once their hands are bound together, The couple is together forever. So the embroidered towel is actually a really important element of the wedding tradition. The bride needs to embroider it herself. I didn't, but I did buy one at an antique shop at the antique shop at Perogiv and I used one of my mother's for the tying of the hands. Anyway, this self embroidery is important because it represents the well wishes and successes of the bride. The towel itself though has to be divided into three parts both end portions should contain embroidery and the middle should be untouched as it symbolizes the purity of god's kingdom it should also be embroidered with red thread and with symbols of light of, of love like a pair of birds flowers such as periwinkle a wreath symbolizes symbolizing no beginning or end and even the mother goddess representing the female domain of the household. The third towel, so one for the korvai, the other for tying of their hands, is placed before the altar and spread on the floor. And when the couple comes upon it, the first one to step on it will be the head of the household. Anyway, back to the wedding ceremony. Zoriana and Tarasa's hands are tied and the priest walks the couple around the altar three times. Some say this is, was a pagan thing, but I also think it came from the Greek influence, too. Um, with the ceremony almost over, Zoriana is taken to kneel in front of the icon of Mother Mary, and the priest blesses her as she is praying for the future of the marriage and babies, if she wants it. And thus ends this church ceremony and the beginning of the party. So this is a bit of a rundown of what happens in modern wedding celebrations, seeing as the more ancient customs involved a lot more time. Another difference was also the wedding night, which was supposed to be culminated in, well, the consummation of the marriage. Back in the day, this was done in a very particular place, the komora, or, well, the barn, and was the beginning of the actual party, which is also best described by, this uh, his name, Szerbukivsky, as in, quote, orgasmic merrymaking, which begins with the bride's deflowering, end quote. The wedding bed was made in the barn and served as a symbolic character since the bride and groom were in a transitional state, i need mean either in one parent's home or the other as was the barn it was between two states of being anyway the party so today it all starts with the procession which begins with the bridesmaids and the ushers then come the parents and stodost. So the stodost are literally the elders. They preside over the wedding and are masters of ceremony back in the day they were the ones who arranged the marriages and acted as matchmakers now it's simply a family representative or an elder friend who is in a committed and loving relationship themselves anyway they are the ones who carry the icons into the church along with the parents but sometimes just the parents are the ones to welcome the newly married couple so Zoriana and Taras would be first greeted by their parents with bread salt, honey, and vodka or wine. All this symbolizes love, prosperity, and wealth. Zoryana and Taras have to take a shot with their parents. And now it's time for the party to begin. This is symbolized by the Storosti officiating toasts, uh, officially toasting the newlywed couple. Today the first dance, the father-daughter dance, and cutting of the cake are incorporated into modern Ukrainian weddings, but they weren't part of it before the turn of the 20th centuries. Now, good Ukrainian weddings have to have two things, drink and dance. If you have those two things, you have the recipe for a successful wedding. Most of our guests might only remember that you got married and not much else. As I said earlier, around midnight, the veil is taken off the bride and the scarf is tied around her head. The veil has only become popular recently. Ukrainian brides didn't have to hide their faces from the grooms since they already saw him before the ceremony. The bride would usually wear whatever the regional costume indicated. For the Bukovina region of the Carpathian Mountains, it was the Karabula, which included Uh, bulrush heads, while in the neighboring Husel region, the headdress might be filled with flowers, wheat, and would be absolutely huge. The Poltava region of central Ukraine had the traditional Ukrainian flower headdress with ribbons coming down the back of it, what you would normally think of when you think of Ukrainian national costumes. These days, the Vinok or flower wreath has made a huge comeback in Ukraine. The veil is popular due to the influence of Western Europe, but also after the Revolution of Dignity, the wreath as a symbol of Ukrainian beauty has come back not only into wedding fashion, but also general Ukrainian fashion. There is a great Vogue article about it which points out that it's not uncommon to see women in Kiev wearing a fake flower wreath in summer. It's become a source of national pride during this time of war. I personally didn't even want to wear a stupid veil, but my mother guilt tripped me into it. But I compromised and wore the thing only for the church ceremony and basically ripped it off my head during the receiving line. I then changed it into my fake flower wreath that I bought in Kiev for the actual party. So I lost my vignoc at midnight rather than my veil. That's just a figure of speech meaning, you know... You're deflowered. I didn't actually lose my vinyl. It's all, it's in my house on the shelf. There's a really big difference between weddings in Ukraine and Ukrainian weddings in North America too. The weddings we have here are considered by many as staged art where certain traditions need to be included to have a great wedding. One of those is the Kolomeka. Now, this is because we were all forced to take Ukrainian dance lessons. And what better way to show off your dance skills when you're exceedingly drunk than a dance-off? And that's what a modern Kolomeka is. So don't be shocked when a circle starts to form on the dance floor and then dancers perform wild and crazy dance moves to outperform each other. In Ukraine and Poland, though, Ukrainian weddings feature more of the fun and game aspect of the Ukrainian wedding. They play erotic light games, sing songs, and tell inappropriate jokes. After the night is over and everyone goes home for the night, there's still the final day of the wedding. Today, this day is called Popravene. It's basically a reason to eat up all the leftovers and drink more some couples go all out and order the band to come play for another day while others are more chill about it and just have close friends and family come by for another familial celebration while still others forget to invite people all together because she's special in that way don't worry enough people showed up to my Popravina that the leftovers are all gone now if you were in the village this day would also mean going between both sets of parents for entertainment and more toasting of the couple so basically another day to get drunk uh i do want to point out that each region has its different variants and every village a different custom what we all mesh together these days is all so unique to the couple and family Ukrainians have also incorporated the traditions of the country they found themselves in if they immigrated out. So the wedding cake is now a feature in many weddings in North America. Back in Ukraine, the registry office has also become a part of the couple's big day. In North America, the priest is an officer of the peace, so can officiate and sign the marriage certificate. Well, in Ukraine, Ukraine, that is not the case. Back during the Soviet times, the church wasn't allowed to exist, and the state was everything. So, the Soviet regime thought a traditional wedding was a bourgeois vestige of the past. So, in early 1920s, marriage registration became compulsory. So was a so-called red wedding, which included a public meeting, which featured a presidium, speeches, and marches with red banners and slogans. It didn't catch on, obviously, because once again, the Soviets have no idea what fun is. But the marriage registration aspect was kept on, and today the couples head off to rocks. Uh, the civil registration building before church. It's basically a civil ceremony that is then followed by a church ceremony if the couple wants it. And I will end with quoting uh, Shed... I even wrote it in Ukrainian and I can't, I can't even pronounce it. Shed Bakivsky, Because he had a great random conclusion. Quote, because of Ukraine's um, exogenous customs, so looking to marry outside of one's social group, each clan tribe had to, no cause to be hostile to other clan tribes, but in fact was amicably disposed towards them, and these friendly feelings were extended to other nations. If these did not, by being aggressive and overbearing like the Russians, make the Ukrainian people lose their patience, end quote. <laughs> Anyway, we married Zoryana and Taras and explored the traditions of the Ukrainian wedding. A magical experience with ritualized traditions that is fun for the whole village or figurative village. Thank you for joining me on this episode of Wandering the Edge and I hope you come back next time. Remember to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at WanderEdgeUkraine. Check out our website wanderingtheedge.net for source information information and other interesting extras. And please, if you can, donate via the PayPal, which is located on the how to help section of the website. And if you're listening to me on Apple Podcast or Podcast Addict, please rate and review and leave a comment about anything, even any weird historical tidbit you have about your culture or peoples. And if you're listening on Spotify or the website, thank you very much. And as always, happy wanderings, my friends.